7.33, so after severe criticism of how the United States was handling coronavirus testing, the Food and Drug Administration has announced a change in policy. To discuss further, we have John Cohen, Science Magazine reporter on the line. Thank you for taking the time. A pleasure. So previously, the advice had been only to test people showing severe symptoms, but now there'll be no restrictions as long as doctors recommend a, a test. How... Significant is that change? Do you think? Well, I mean, you have to realize how ridiculous it's been here. I mean, we we had tested fewer than five hundred people in the entire country, and we have you know something like three hundred and fifty million people here. So it's going to make a huge difference because we have we should have availability of you know thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of tests pretty soon. And we'll have a clear sense of how far the virus has spread. If you don't look for something, you're not going to find it. Now, while earlier test kits were even reported to be faulty, the FDA in the US did issue a policy that allows flexibility around the development of diagnostic tests. What's your expectation for that? Because it's very important not only to carry out enough tests, but to make sure people can feel confident when they're told they don't have it or do have it. This isn't rocket science. The labs around the country and hospital and hospitals and public health labs, state labs, they have the equipment to do this. They know how to do it. There's an, uh, what I think the FDA has realized and the top level of the government realized is that their very careful system was too bureaucratic and was hurting people. So they loosened it up because it wasn't working. And times have changed. I mean, the machinery that uh, does these analyses has been around for a long time now, and lots of people have them. You know, this, uh, that changes everything, too. And I think that the, there's been a reckoning about where we are in 2020 with the technology and with the way we validate whether things work. The United States situation is interesting, of course, compared with Korea. It's very different. You've, you've got a huge population, but also spread out over a much larger landmass. And you've got rural communities, you've got more space between outbreaks. In, in, in theory, it would make sense to look at this almost uh, from a state by state basis, wouldn't it? Rather than a blanket policy for I, the whole I, nation. I think it's a, yeah, you're saying something profound. I think it would make sense to look at the United States as 50 different countries. Right. It's a very diverse place. And so, yes, it's extremely different in different regions. And the way people move about is very different in different regions. Uh, it's not, it is one place. We share one government and one system. But uh, it, when it comes down to the spread of disease, it takes very different patterns in different places. But with the death toll now reaching 11, President Trump's... Uh, attitude starts to look more like overconfidence just a few days ago and there are reasons behind those deaths and, and just like with here in Korea we, we could point to underlying health conditions but it still doesn't change the fact that number is rising and those deaths arguably wouldn't have happened now had it not been for COVID-19. So how's that affecting people's mindset generally? I think that people have a very uh difficult time understanding risk. And one of the things that governments try to do whenever there's an outbreak of a new disease is keep people calm. That's a reasonable thing to do. This is not the end of the world. Yes, people are dying. 
it is, it is tragic and it is frightening. Um, at the same time, this isn't the worst um, virus that has ever shown up uh, in the human population. We will figure this out in time. And most of us who get infected are going to have mild or moderate disease. So I think that the way that panic occurs and fear works into this is a complicated mix of the way people relate to risk, the way that they feel about risk tolerance, and the way that they perceive uh, the risk of something. Yes, this is very dangerous for elderly people or for people who have heart disease or diabetes or hypertension. For the rest of the population, it's, it's the same kind of danger that you face with influenza virus. You don't want it. It's certainly going to lay you out for three, four, five days, and it's going to make your life miserable, and you're going to get over it, and you're going to be okay. And I think both those messages have to go out, and that's the complexity that our government has had a really difficult time wrestling with. And it's, it's linked, obviously, to the crash of the stock market, too, because that is a barometer and a reflection of how we feel about risk. Yeah. I mean, most of what you've just said there is what I've been telling myself and telling others for weeks, but things change so fast here when the numbers start to shoot up. And when you have, as we had recently on the show, a a Harvard epidemiologist suggesting that one in four people globally will end up being infected, even if most people get over it within a few days, that, that vulnerable population suddenly can translate into millions of deaths, if that's the case. Uh, and, and again, I don't want to be alarmist, but how do you interpret no, those pre- predictions? Let's be, on- let's be honest, it is alarming. And, and we, it also points out how we don't take risks. Uh, we, our own conception of risk is screwy to begin with, and people point to influenza a lot. Influenza kills a lot of people, but we've become used to it. And automobiles kill a lot of people, and we become used to it. And we can do things like wear seatbelts. We can do things like take flu vaccines. In this country, we have a law that requires people to wear seatbelts. Why is that? How peculiar? How weird? You know, why do you have to compel people to take a flu vaccine when we know that it reduces severity of disease? It may save your life. Even if it isn't the best vaccine in the world, it's good for you. So the way that we respond and react to all this is not strictly logical. Totally agreed, and it, and that's been very clear throughout this outbreak. Um, but do you just to elaborate on that question? Do you see this being as expensive? Because if it was as big as some of these Harvard epidemiologists are saying, it would far exceed regular influenza or any of the strains we've seen recently, and it would be fairly unprecedented. I don't know. Here's my here's my perspective that is based on my covering infectious diseases for 30 years and different emerging pathogens, when something new shows up, there are loads of unanswered questions, and there's a fog of outbreaks. We don't know what's going on. We don't know where this is going to go. We don't really know much about it at this point. We're learning every day a tremendous amount, but it's new. It just entered, entered our population recently. And if it spreads to 10, 20, 30, 40% of the human population, sure, it's going to be devastating. But we learn to live with these things. And, you know, influenza can spread to a huge proportion of people on Earth. So we will learn to take more precautions. We will, I hope, develop a vaccine in time 
That has altered the equation with influenza spread, certainly. And we can develop treatments. We have really strong um, tools now to advance biomedical interventions that ultimately are more powerful than these things like quarantining people. Or, you know, we chase smallpox off the earth with a vaccine. There's no smallpox. We're chasing polio off the earth with the vaccine. If we can develop a vaccine here, and that's an if, there's no certainty, um, remarkable things can happen. It's like, I think people also don't understand the biggest public health intervention of all time is sanitation, cleaning the water, giving people toilets. Massive impact on life expectancy. You know, a great advance. Right after that, vaccines. They're, they're, They're this tremendous force. If we get a vaccine, it will alter it will alter the course of this virus. Well, certainly, um, Mr. Cohen. We are out of time, and we're going to, about to head to Australia, but I just want to briefly finish by asking you if we can get a quick uh, answer on this, if possible, because it's a big question, and it's a huge political question, perhaps ahead of the election. Is U.S. healthcare able to stand up to this, the way it's currently structured? We're going to find out. Okay. I'd put it into the bucket. I'd put it put it into the bucket of one of those unanswerable questions right now. Right, because many people would would rather take their chances with a with a healthcare system that's more affordable and more efficient, perhaps um, if, in if, that unknown. If, yeah, if thirty, forty, fifty percent of Americans have this virus, it is certainly going to stress our system, and it's going to point out weaknesses. That's what these you know explosive. Uh, new diseases do. They test your system, and you find the faults and the cracks. Our system certainly has people who aren't receiving health care right now, who aren't insured, and that will uh, become evident. (laughs) The virus will make it clear. That's what happens. Thank you so much, John Cohen, Science Magazine reporter. Thanks for having me. I also work with an international team, by the way, so I don't want you to think I'm doing this alone. I'm not. Well, we appreciate that. And and it's been really helpful getting some of your caution on the panic. Professor Peter Collignon is an infectious diseases physician and microbiologist at Canberra Hospital, Australia. Thank you also for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you give us a, a sense of how Australia is both handling it now and geared up to handle a bigger outbreak going forward? Well, so far we've only had about 50 cases or less, um, although there's obviously an expectation to have more. And relatively, we've had little in Australia, uh, you know, um, transmission from person to person. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, you know, one expect that will increase. Um, I, I think actually there is a, a sense of fear and panic that's out of proportion to the risk so far uh, internationally, but even in Australia, you know, you, we're seeing people you know, buying more than they need and all the rest of it. But so, and and our health system, like most countries, you know, is reasonably occupied most of the time with people who are ill. So if you have a large number of other people coming, that puts a strain on your system and you have to start looking at, you know, cancelling elective surgery and a whole lot of things that interfere with normal practice. But um, from my perspective, the fear at the moment is um, out of proportion to the available data. I mean, I think there is some good news around that doesn't actually get the publicity it should. First of all, in China, it really looks like the numbers are coming down if the, if the figures are accurate. And even when they've you know, chased up close contacts, 
Um, you know, there were many thousands of close contacts followed up in China and reported in a recent international WHO China report. And it showed, much to my surprise, a much lower level of transmission than I was expecting. It was about, you know, 2 to 3%. And even within households, it was at a maximum of about 10% and, and usually lower. So that's lower than I would have expected. And the other really interesting finding in the data I saw from Korea this morning as well is the lack of children at least being diagnosed with this and, you know, the lack of deaths in anyone under the age of 30 relatively. I mean, this mainly seems to be bad if you're over the age of 60 and particularly if you're over the age of 70. Not that, you know, people under that don't die, but the, the current mortality rate quoted of 3%. First of all, Korea is not seeing that. My understanding is your mortality rate is 0.6%. Um, but also, more importantly, um, it's, again, disproportionate in the older, which I might say happens with influenza every year as well. So, right. the, you know, all these predictions that 60% of the world's population are going to get it and we're going to have, you know, tens of millions of deaths, I don't think the current data supports that um, because it's not spreading the way Spanish flu did. Um, the mortality rate of Spanish flu was 2%, as far as I can see, and it spread to 25 to 30% of the world's population. But the current data doesn't suggest the mortality rate is, is that high, nor is the spread probably as much as um, influenza and Spanish influenza, and particularly how children seem not to be at least diagnosed at the moment with it. They may have asymptomatic infection, but again... Um, that's good news and bad news. It means it's spreading wider than what we currently know, but it also means the mortality rate is going to be a lot lower. And you might remember with swine flu, all these predictions were made when it first started, and that didn't eventuate to you know that degree. I mean, at the end, swine flu was not much worse than seasonal influenza. It just picked slightly different people. Pregnant women were more at risk, and you know some and people more in their forties and fifties. But that aside. Um, you know, our predictions of pandemics have not been very accurate over the last, uh, well, dire predictions of pandemics have not been very accurate over the last, I think, 20 years. Ebola's the same. I think yeah. it's going to spread all around the world. Well, the reality, it doesn't because of a whole lot of infrastructure and other issues. So the short answer is we don't know. But my own view is this. I don't think the mortality will be 3%, and I don't think it will spread as widely as flu does and as quickly. And I also think that we need to look at the good news where, in fact, epidemic curves are falling in places like China. It's not yet in Korea, and hopefully it will, but, you know, and, but, and Singapore has been very successful so far at, you know, having an outbreak and controlling it. So, you know, I don't think it's the end of the world. The... I mean, th this all sounds very positive, and I certainly would love to just take that answer and, and run with it. But what about when people in China start returning to work unmasked, given the infection that's still there? And what about throwing into that question the way in which this is spread so easily in Italy and, and the deaths there rising above 100? It, it, it's, it's alarming that tourists can just visit Italy and go back to their home country infected. Yeah, look, I don't want to underplay the fact that this is new and people die from it and there's going to be lots of people who die. Um, but uh, the point I'm making is that, again, in Italy, as has been in other areas around the world, for instance with SARS in Canada, hospitals seem to be a way of disseminating these infections, particularly if infection control is not done 
properly for all respiratory infections because the trouble is people come in with what just looks like a bad cold but it's actually something else and you don't realise it and you've got a whole lot of vulnerable people, people who maybe aren't as um, protected as they should be routinely because I think it's the routine. So uh, I'm not, and, and what's going to happen in China, we, that's where we need to wait and see because I think it is really an issue, uh, you know, so far probably because of the intense controls they've put on it and lack of people moving, yeah, it appears to be going down. The only bright side I would again say on the Chinese data, most of the infections have still just been in one province. We have no idea how many people were infected, but even in that province with, I think, 30 million people, it's really only 1% or 2% of the population that have been infected. And in other provinces that you'd think have reasonable infrastructure and testing, you know, around Shanghai, around Beijing... Yes, there's been lots of cases, you know, over a thousand, but it's not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, and it's not as if all these restrictions were being put in in early, you know, at the time it was first around anyway. So, look, the short answer is none of us know. I think there's some positive stuff out there that isn't emphasised and any of the negative stuff, but none of us really know what the spread rate is going to be and what the true mortality rate is. The only thing that appears to be fairly obvious at the moment, this is predominantly badly affecting people who are older, those over the age of 60. Um, and both the Chinese data and I think your Korea, data from Korea and, and every, from a point of view of deaths and severe disease. Not that if you're 30 you can't get really sick too, but that happens with influenza, that can happen. It's just the relative rates of bad outcomes seem disproportionately in those who are older. Again, we're out of time, but what about the, the extreme measures that governments might be considering? China was a big lockdown. Australia has biosecurity laws that are rarely used but could be enforced to forcibly detain and decontaminate people. What do you make of that response? Well, I don't, I don't think that's unreasonable that some of these things have been done up to now because while I believe the mortality rate will be lower and I'm not sure the spread is as much as influenza, the short answer is I don't know and nobody knows because we don't have that data. I presume it's going to come available over the next month or so where we can make more informed decisions. I mean, essentially, if you have something with a mortality rate over 1% that is likely to spread readily in the population, then I do think you need to take these measures that have been taken, or well, it's not unreasonable to. If we find out the mortality rate, like swine flu, was not, you know, 3% or 6%, but was 0.03%, you know, um, 3 in 10,000 people, um, then that is a completely different set of criteria you should put on people, and maybe you have to get more directive, uh, directed in what restrictions you put on what groups. It may not be that schools have to be closed, but you have to take a lot more care with, you know, people in age times. But the short answer is we still don't know. But I actually think these dire predictions of, you know, 60% of the world will get infected and, you know, tens of millions of deaths, I don't think the data at the moment is the same as what happened with Spanish flu. And I, I think that's a little bit of an overcall. Professor Peter Collignon from Canberra Hospital, thank you for joining us. Thank you.